Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Before we start today's episode, I'd like to share a bit of exciting news with you. At least I think it's exciting. As you may remember from last year, I wrote and recorded an audio tour for Stockholm together with VoiceMap, a tour that you can still buy if you download the free VoiceMap app. Well, this spring, I've been working on an additional tour. This time, it's a guided audio tour of my old university town, Lund in southern Sweden, the medieval metropolis where Valdemar the Victorious was crowned and the archbishops of Denmark used to be located until Sweden conquered Scania in the 17th century. You can now download my tour of Lund using VoiceMap for when you'll go visit this gem of a town. And you don't even have to go to Lund to enjoy the tour. If, for some inexplicable reason, you're not planning on visiting Lund anytime soon, you can also download the tour and listen to it on your porch, in the car, or in the bath. If you're quick, you can even use the promo code LUND2023 and download the tour of Lund for free. The first 25 people who download the VoiceMap app and who use the promo code LUND, that's L-U-N-D in all caps, 2023, Get the tour Lund Tour from medieval metropolis to contemporary college city, absolutely free of charge. That code again is Lund, L U N D, 2023. Okay, that's enough self promotion for now. Let's get back to the political drama of early 16th century Scandinavia. Last time, King John finally managed to achieve his and his father's goal and he re established the Kalmar Union fully by being crowned king of Sweden. It didn't happen by itself, though. John was a clever and skillful politician, and his maneuverings managed to get rid of the Swedish steward of the realm, Sten Sture, and get the council of the realm to accept him as king. He had to agree to limit his own powers in Sweden, but little by little he managed to reclaim powers he'd have to relinquish, not least by pitting members of the council against each other and against the ex-steward, Sten Sture. This annoyed and frustrated the Swedish high nobility, but they had to suck it up, unable to do anything about it. Until King John went and got himself tangled up in a conflict in Schleswig-Holstein. The king and a mighty army of noble knights, mercenaries and conscripted soldiers fell for the oldest trick in the book. A peasant army ambushed them when they were stretched out along a long, narrow road with no escape, picking the knights off one by one. When the news of the humiliating defeat reached Stockholm, the Swedish nobles smelled blood in the water. They decided it was time to try and get rid of King John. Today, we'll see how that went. Episode 67, Drifting Apart. On August 1st, 1501, seven members of the Swedish Council of the Realm, led by Sten Sture, the ex-steward, issued a letter stating that they no longer recognized King John as the King of Sweden. In the letter, they justified this decision by accusing the king of having broken a long list of promises, agreements and Swedish laws. They also encouraged Swedes all over the kingdom to join their fight for the liberty and the rights of their country. Even though some people did join the rebellion, among them several members of the high nobility and even two bishops, others remained loyal to the king. The archbishop, 
who was no friend of Stensture, refused to join the rebellion and urged the sides to reach a negotiated settlement and avoid open war. King John was in Stockholm when the news of the rebellion reached him. He decided to return to Denmark to drum up support and to raise an army to crush his opponents. He left his wife, Queen Christina, in charge of the defense of Stockholm Castle. She had 1,000 soldiers at her disposal, so she wasn't exactly left high and dry, though. But the trouble was that even though she held on to the castle, the city itself fell to the rebels already in October. It soon became tricky to feed all those soldiers holed up in the castle when they no longer had access to the resources of the city. The lack of food was problematic for the defenders in the castle, and the garrison suffered from scurvy. But still, they held out throughout the winter. But on April 29th, the outer court was stormed and fell to the rebels. After that, it was really only a question of time until Queen Christina would have to surrender. Still, she held out for another 10 days, hoping, increasingly desperately, that help would arrive from her husband in Denmark. But on May 9th, she had no choice and had to give up the castle. It must have been a bitter experience, opening the gate and handing over the keys to the triumphant Steensture. He probably didn't get any less bitter when a Danish fleet sent to help the beleaguered castle arrived only three days later. After the fall of Stockholm, the military situation was quite similar to what it had been like after the battle at Brunkeberg in 1471. But politically, the situation was quite different. Then, 30 years before, the battle ended what had been mostly a war between Swedish feuding camps. And even though King Christian had lost the battle, there was still a strong pro-Union opinion to be found in broad strata of Swedish society, not least importantly in the high nobility. But now, the supporters of the Kalmar Union were few and far between in Sweden, and the fighting had started to take on a character of a struggle between Denmark and Sweden as states, rather than between camps of Swedish aristocrats. Stensture had played a key role in this change, in the propaganda he'd spread to things and in letters and speeches, the conflict had been described as one between two countries, two peoples, instead of over which rights and powers the Union King should have in Sweden. And following his military triumph in 1501, Sten did what he could to drive his message home even further. In November that year, Sten was once again appointed steward of the realm. That fall and winter, he was busy travelling throughout the country, visiting things and markets, spreading his propaganda for why the rebellion had been necessary and why it was of the utmost importance not to let King John back into the country. Instead, he propagated for an independent Sweden, ruled by its own laws, free from nefarious foreign influence. Once again, the fighting in Sweden inspired rebellious sentiments in Norway as well. There, one of the most prominent members of the shrinking Norwegian nobility, a guy called Knut Alfson, started a rebellion of his own to rid Norway of King John. Knut probably hoped that he, just like Sten Sture, would end up a steward after a successful rebellion, or even king, like Karl Knutsson had. He received not only inspiration from Sweden, but also some military support. Nonetheless, it wasn't so easy to get the Norwegians to join his cause, partly because a large part of the nobility in Norway was now married into Danish families, and partly because several Norwegian castles were in the hands of Danes outright. Still, Knut Alfson managed to capture Akershus Castle in Oslo, as well as Tunsberg Castle, further south along the Oslo Fjord. But when he failed to gain widespread support, 
he felt forced to enter into negotiations with the commander of the Danish army on a Danish ship anchored in Oslo harbour. But even though Knut Alfson had been promised safe conduct, he was murdered when he entered the ship, and with his death, the Norwegian uprising against King John petered out. Killing someone who had been promised safe conduct was a shocking act, not to mention a serious crime, and even a Danish chronicle condemned the murder and the murderer, saying, Knut Alfson came to the meeting under promise of safe conduct that even the cruelest Turk would have honoured. But King John greeted the foul deed with joy and gratitude, and didn't seem the least bit bothered by the duplicious nature of how the victory had been won. This was the way the game of high politics was played these days. John's son and heir, Christian, who had been participating in the fighting to quell the Norwegian rebellion, saw and learned. Even though the Norwegian rebels had lost their leader and the rebellion had collapsed, the Swedes kept trying to resuscitate it by intervening. The commander of the Swedish army and member of the Council of the Realm, called Svante Nilsson, attacked Oslo in 1503. He continued on to Tönsberg, where he took the castle and burnt it. This old stronghold with roots in the Viking Age was never rebuilt. Still, King John managed to retain control over Norway. But as Norway was pacified, the fighting over Sweden continued. The Swedes weren't passively waiting for the Danes to attack, but went on the offensive, attacking across the border into Denmark. In March 1503, Danish-held Kalmar was put under siege. After two months, the city of Kalmar capitulated and let the Swedes in, but the castle proved a tougher nut to crack. The siege of the castle remained, but the Danish defenders weren't too worried. Not only did they still have open access to the Baltic Sea, they also controlled Kalmar Harbour, effectively blocking anyone from using it. In the meantime, Stensture had another issue to deal with. Believe it or not, but Queen Christina, who had defended Stockholm Castle so valiantly and stubbornly, was still held in Swedish hands two years later. And it wasn't like the Swedes refused to release her either. Sure, they wanted to use the release of the Queen as a bargaining chip, but King John wasn't particularly keen on entering negotiations, and he wasn't in any hurry to get his wife back either. He was perfectly happy to leave her in Swedish hands, since it made it easier for him to continue his long-term affair with his mistress, who had moved into Copenhagen Castle. The queen, meanwhile, was kept at Vastena. But in the fall of 1503, King John was finally willing to take her back and start talks with the Swedes. Stensture and a number of senior dignitaries participated in the ceremonial handover of the Queen in December 1503. On the way back north, the steward suddenly fell ill. The illness was so sudden that some people speculated he had been poisoned by the Queen's private physician as some kind of parting gift. Stensture and his entourage made it to Jönköping, but there the steward died on December 14th. His closest associates wanted to keep the death a secret for political purposes. They wanted to make sure that the military commander, Svante Nilsson, who had burned down Tönsberg Castle, would replace Stensture as steward of the realm. And in order to have a smooth transition, they needed to prepare the ground. Most crucially, they needed to make it back to Stockholm before anyone realized Stensture was dead. So at Jönköping, the corpse was discreetly stashed away between a bunch of furs, and that package was added to the steward's baggage train. Then, one of Stensture's servants was dressed up as his deceased master, 
complete with fancy clothes, jewelry, and various insignia of his high office. The servant didn't look much like Stensture, but that wasn't too big of a problem. They just tied a piece of cloth over his eyes, making it impossible to see his face. That actually looked less suspicious than it sounds, because it was well known that Stensture suffered from an eye condition, which had caused him to wear a blindfold sometimes in the past. Despite this sounding like the premise for some dumb made-for-TV movie from the 1990s, they managed to reach Stockholm without anyone finding out the truth. There, they hid the body in the mausoleum Stensture modestly had prepared for himself in the city's main church. The whole plan actually worked well, and no one found out that the steward had been dead for a whole month. When the Council of the Realm convened after Christmas, Svante Nilsson was elected the new steward, all according to plan. Even though the new steward, Svante Nilsson, seemed more interested than his predecessor in reconciling with King John and re-establishing the Union, the same mix of fighting and negotiations between Stockholm and Copenhagen that we've grown accustomed to, and frankly tired of over the last few episodes, continued. One of the reasons was that Svante Nilsson had to contend with the political fallout of Stensture's time in power, and the deep-seated distrust of the Danes that Stensture's propaganda had left among the peasant population, especially in Dalarna. This popular refusal to accept a Danish king or to pay taxes that risked ending up in another part of the Kalmar Union had been a potential asset when the council hadn't been interested in rejoining the Union. Or, as one prominent member of the national leadership wrote, the Dane, the Jute, the German and the devil all fear Dalarna. But this hostility, boosted by Stensture's propaganda, now limited Svante Nilsson's ability to maneuver in his negotiations with King John. He couldn't reach an agreement with the king without risking the wrath of the people and possibly a new rebellion, this time against both the king and himself as well. Another and potentially worse problem facing Svante Nilsson was that he lacked the political skill that Stensture had possessed. A superior politician may have handled the situation better, but the new steward soon found that he couldn't control the high nobility in the way his predecessor had been able to. And if you couldn't control the nobles, you couldn't control the country, because these noblemen were the ones who commanded castles and governed regions for the crown. In May 1504, an agreement was reached regarding Kalmar Castle, which was still under siege by the Swedes. King John actually did hand the key stronghold over to a Swede, but to a Swede that was loyal to him. More importantly, perhaps, there would also be a one-year truce, and at midsummer in 1505, the two sides were to meet in Kalmar to negotiate a permanent deal. Again. In June 1505, King John showed up in Kalmar, together with 60 ships and a large army consisting of 3,200 soldiers. Svante Nilsson, the Swedish steward, had also planned to go to Kalmar as per the agreement, but he took his sweet time, letting the Danish king wait. John didn't like it, and at some point he ran out of patience. The king set up a court made up of 24 Danish and Norwegian council members. They convicted Svante Nilsson, seven Swedish council members, and even the dead Sten Sture of crimes against the crown. The convicted men were sentenced to death in their absence, and all their property was to be confiscated. Obviously, only their property in Denmark could be touched, but that was serious enough, at least for Sten Sture's widow, whose large Danish lands and incomes were taken from her. In addition, 
the court decided that King John was the rightful king of Sweden, a decision as unsurprising as it was ineffectual. Since none of the nine noblemen who had been convicted had showed up in Kalmar, eight because they were running late, and one because it was already dead, their death sentences couldn't be carried out. This annoyed King John, who really wanted to execute somebody. So a number of local burghers who had aided the Swedish troops in taking the city two years previously were rounded up. Some of them were tortured before they were all beheaded, their bodies cut up and left to rot outside the city walls. When the trial was over and the punishment meted out, although not to the people actually convicted at the trial, King John left Kalmar with his army and his fleet. But remember, Svante Nilsson hadn't actually dissed the king and the steward had planned to attend the meeting. So two weeks after the king had left, Svante Nilsson and a number of council members were finally approaching Kalmar. As they did, they heard about what had happened while they were running ridiculously late. They responded with official fury and defiance, but in private, several of the council members who had been sentenced to death were seriously shaken up, and they started to consider whether it wouldn't be better to stop fighting and actually try to reach an agreement with the king, forming something of a peace party. But for now, the war against King John was back on. The fighting continued in the years that followed, but little of interest happened. The Swedes, loyal to Svante Nilsson, tried but failed to take Kalmar Castle. They also sent raiding parties across the border into Denmark. King John, on his part, sent his large fleet to keep up a trade blockade against Sweden. He also turned to Swedish border regions and told them they could get access to salt, the most important import for most Swedes, if they just paid tribute to the king. The king also ordered the fleet to raid the Swedish coast, which the Danes could do more or less at will. During these raids, towns and villages were forced to pay, or they would be burned to the ground. Notables, such as priests, were sometimes kidnapped and held for ransom. For the Swedes, it was difficult to keep enough soldiers in the field. They had a few German mercenaries, but they were very expensive. As usual, the lion's share of the Swedish army consisted of peasants and it was tricky to get them to stay with their units, since they were torn between their military service and the need to go home and tend to their farms. In addition, these farmer soldiers weren't keen on leaving their own home regions, and would sometimes mutiny if their commanders tried to march them off to another part of the country to fight. The things supported this position, and often refused to allow local troops to fight too far from home, stating that the men were needed at home in case the enemy would show up there. Nonetheless, the things were usually quite enthusiastic about the idea of raising troops, and would respond favorably. But then, only a few men would actually turn up to join the army. The same could be said about money to pay for the war effort. Even though the things might agree to the cost, it was common that no or little money was actually raised. This frustrated the steward, and it made it well-nigh impossible for the Swedes to do anything consequential, especially taking Kalmar Castle, which was a priority. But annoying as it was, the steward and the council couldn't do much about it. To further frustrate both Copenhagen and Stockholm, the peasants in the border regions had their own old understanding, independent from their kings and nobles. These inhabitants of the border regions had a long-standing agreement that they would not fight each other. Trade would continue as usual, and if any army from their own country was approaching and planned to cross the border, the peasants 
promised to warn their neighbors in the other country. In addition, brigands and other criminals were to be given no peace by crossing the border. So in practice, the border regions declared neutrality and solidarity with peasants on the other side of the border, rather than the crown and their own country. In some instances, the peasants even refused to pay taxes until peace had been restored. This border peace was a problem for the national armies. When the Swedish steward arrived in southern Sweden in the winter of 1506, planning to attack across the border into Denmark, he even had to cancel the whole campaign due to the resistance among the Swedish peasants. Even though some noblemen probably supported these peace initiatives, since the border nobility also suffered economically from these seemingly endless wars, they couldn't do so officially, since they had sworn oaths of loyalty and fealty to the crown. This kind of border peace had probably existed in the past as well, and they'd remain a phenomenon up until the late 17th century, albeit more watered down and covering smaller regions as time passed and the central power of the states grew stronger. In later centuries, the 19th century onward, this behaviour has been roundly criticised. People with a clearer and stronger national identity have tended to see this kind of border peace as selfish and even treacherous, working against your own country and nation. But that's an anachronistic way to understand it. These peasants on both sides of the border wanted peace. They may have known the people on the other side of the border personally, and they definitely knew them better than people at the other end of their own country. The sense of nationhood didn't really exist like it does today. You belonged to a kingdom, sure, but your identity was linked more to your village or region than to Denmark or Sweden. So it made sense to show solidarity to the people you were closer to. It's true that we see propaganda using nationalist tropes and themes at this time, perhaps because it was a natural angle to use during the internal fighting in the Kalmar Union. The Swedes wanted to justify their rebellions, already starting with Engelbrecht Engelbrechtsson in the 1430s, with the wickedness of the Danes, or at least the Danish king and his men. It's unclear how much that affected regular people. But even though it may not have been a message that spoke to people's preconceptions, it may have planted a seed in their consciousness. In any case, I think it probably worked better further away from the border, where people in general didn't have any real-life experience of the wicked foreigners who were painted in such unflattering colours in the Crown's propaganda. So, the almost constant fighting between Denmark and Sweden in the early 16th century may have prepared the ground for hostile propaganda, but that propaganda didn't necessarily reflect deeply held sentiments among regular people, at least not to begin with whatever historians of later centuries would have liked us to believe. Anyway, in 1509, the Swedes gave up the attempts to take Kalmar Castle by force and reached yet another deal with the Danes. It wasn't just their inability to succeed militarily that had softened the Swedish position. The trade embargo had also started to take its toll. It was difficult to sell Swedish iron abroad and to buy the salt necessary to live. A peace agreement was reached after negotiations in Copenhagen, the Swedes agreed to pay tribute to Denmark of 13,000 marks per year as long as they didn't recognize John as King of Sweden. The only small, marginal, minuscule problem was that the Swedish delegation that agreed to this deal didn't have the mandate to do so. When they returned home and related the details of the agreement, the treaty split the council. The steward and a number of nobles were against it, Instead, they wanted to convince Lübeck to join in a war against Denmark, whereas a number of bishops, led by the archbishop, 
were in favour of the peace deal. The steward prevailed, and in February 1510, a Swedish delegation sailed off to Lübeck to try and convince the powerful Hansa city to break the trade blockade and join a war against Denmark. The plan worked, and thanks to a fleet from Lübeck harassing the Danes and blocking them, no provisions could be supplied to the force under siege at Kalmar Castle. This led to the important castle finally falling to the Swedes in August 1510, and in November that same year, Borgholm Castle on Öland followed suit. In January 1511, a Danish force under the command of the heir Christian, who had been functioning as something of a viceroy in Norway since 1507, entered Vestrogothia on a raiding campaign. They burned all farms, villages and towns that couldn't pay to escape that fate. And whether they paid or not, they were all systematically plundered. This went on for weeks, and the Swedes weren't able to put up any kind of effective resistance. The steward was actually in the region, but he didn't think he had the manpower to face Christian on the battlefield, so he retreated, leaving the Danes more or less unopposed to burn and plunder a large part of southwestern Sweden before they went home again. As you may have guessed, the Danish campaign and his own ineffectual response weakened the steward. People were outraged that he'd neglected the defense of the country, and in the Council of the Realm, the whole debacle strengthened the peace party. If Sweden couldn't defend itself, it was madness to try and fight the Danes, they said. Demands were heard for the steward to step down and leave the job to someone better suited. Despite the harsh criticism, he managed to postpone the decision of his future to a meeting in early 1512. And in the end, Svante Nilsson wasn't forced to resign at that meeting. Unfortunately for him, though, that was because he died on January 2nd, 1512, before the meeting convened to discuss his fate. Next time, we'll see who will pick up Svante Nilsson's fallen mantle and how the new steward of Sweden will handle the growing onslaught of the Danes. We'll also check in with Christian, who's about to succeed his father, John, on the Danish throne. But before we end today, I'd like to answer two questions I've received from listeners. The first question comes from Nicole in Toronto. In episode 64, I said that the King of England is a descendant of the House of Oldenburg. But, Nicole asks, isn't he a Windsor? How can he be an Oldenburg as well? Well, it's true that Charles III is a Windsor through his mother, the late Queen Elizabeth II. But his father, Prince Philip, was born a Greek prince. And he was a descendant of the Oldenburgs because the Greek royal family had been imported to Greece from Denmark back in the 19th century. So Prince Philip was born a Glücksburg, which is the branch of the Oldenburg family that reigns in Denmark today. That's how Charles III is a descendant of the Oldenburg family. The second question comes from Gary in New Jersey. His question is about King John. Gary wants to know how it's possible that his name is Hans in Danish. He rightly points out that there's very little resemblance between these two names. How can they possibly be the same? Are they the same, or did the Danes use a pseudonym for this guy? It is the same name, even though it's not immediately obvious to the untrained eye. You see, the original form of this name is Yohanan, and it's Hebrew meaning God's merciful. In Koine Greek and Latin, this turned into Johannes, and that, in turn, made its way into English as John, focusing on the first part of the name, and Hans in Danish, focusing on the second part of the name. 
There are also other names used in Scandinavia today that ultimately fall back on Johannan, such as Johan, Johannes, Hannes, Jon, and Juha. And with that, all that remains for me today is to wish you all a very happy midsummer, or as it's actually known in some parts of Scandinavia, believe it or not, St. John's Day. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian history podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Havamal accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as wake up early if you want another man's land or life, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop, or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.